So then. If you awaken from this illusion. Persistence of vision. Welcome to Persistence of Vision podcast. Hello, folks. Hello. What's up, LB? What's up, Lance Fever Myers? We are the co-hosts, LB, uh, Dio, and uh, Lance Fever Myers of Persistence of Vision podcast. What does Persistence of Vision mean? Persistence of Vision? I, I already told you. <laughs> it means uh, this... Uh, I keep forgetting. This psychological effect that occurs when we watch very quickly changing images, uh, as in a movie or an animated cartoon, that creates the illusion that we're seeing a single moving image rather than a series of still images. Gotcha. Okay. But it, it has a, a double meaning also, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, I think. Uh, does it mean that uh, we're, we have a vision of uh, what is our vision? We have a vision and we're sticking to it. This yeah, is our story and we're sticking to it. We have a vision to inspire conversations and to promote inspiring conversations. We're tired of the small talk, right? We're tired of this idle chit chat. We're tired of the emojis. <laughs> you know, what the hell is up with those? We want to feel like we're, we're, we're engaged in something substantial. Yeah, we'd like to think that our time on earth is too precious to waste saying LOL and and, and <laughs> OMG, <laughs> right. to actually speak in whole sentences. So to that end, we have Persistence of Vision Publishing, uh, which if you look at the P, uh, if you look at pov-publishing.com, that is our website. We have comics up there that are hopefully uh, inspiring. Um, we have the POV Reader, which is updated monthly. We have an author up right now. Her name is Juanice Myers. Poetry by Juanice Myers is on the POV Reader. Um, and we have the podcast, which comes up every two weeks. And you're listening to it. You're listening to it right now. And we have a very exciting guest, Atia Abawi, who is a journalist, a, uh, a refugee, a, uh, an, and a novelist, who has written two novels, the most recent of which we'll be discussing today. It's called A Land of Permanent Goodbyes. It tells the story of a family of Syrians who escape from Syria, who flee to Turkey, and then take another, even more dangerous trip from Turkey to Greece. It is a uh, up-to-the-moment story of what's really going on in that part of the world that is absolutely harrowing, terrifying, and inspiring. It's a very engaging account, very human account of uh, um, the situation um, that we all hear about so much in the news today. And I can't wait to talk to her. You want to roll them? Yeah, let's 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 uh, let's get Atia on the line here and find out what she's really all about. Both Fantastic. Enjoying your book immensely. Hmm. Good to hear. Thank you. Thanks for reading it. Of course. Of course. Oh yes, it was wonderful. Uh. Lance, do you want to start? Sure. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you so much for being a part of this. We really appreciate it. It sort of classes up our, our little uh, operation here to have you with us. Um, where are you calling from? Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me. I of am course. calling from uh, Redondo Beach, California right now. Okay. And, and you're still working for NBC News. Is that correct? No, no, I'm not okay. working for right now. Okay, gotcha. So I was going to ask, I think, the, well, the first thing I was going to ask was uh, that switch 
making that switch from journalism to fiction. What was that like? It was actually really difficult. Um, I was, I, I think I was still actually with CNN the first, for my first book when I had the opportunity to write it. And I do remember, um, I remember before I got the opportunity, I had a dream to always write a novel. And covering war zones, I decided at one point, like I lost my imagination because as a journalist, especially a journalist overseas, I think a journalist anywhere, you should not be using your imagination. So um, hmm. over time, uh, covering war after war, um, I did lose my imagination. So I do remember thinking, well, that dream of writing a novel is never going to happen. Um, and then the opportunity came about, uh, luckily, through a friend of a friend. So I had a friend who was working at ABC News, and he had gone to college with an editor at um, Philomill, which is the imprint of Penguin. And they were looking for an author uh, to write a book based in Afghanistan. And she wanted a female author. So he reached out to all the females he knew, and he knew a lot of females in Afghanistan, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And uh, said, if you're interested, uh, email Jill Santapolo, who is my editor. Um, so I emailed Jill and she got emails from other people as well. And she said, well, you know, write me a sample chapter. So um, I decided to write that sample chapter and she got that. And she was like, all right, you know, let's narrow this down. Write me another chapter as well. And I do remember flying into New York for work at one point and decided to have um, a drink with her and just say, because she had chosen my chapters, but she said, we need to work on things. So I, <laughs> I do remember saying, um, am I allowed to use uh, some words on this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yes. yes, you certainly are. I asked Jill, I was like, be honest with me, were my, my chapters crap? And uh, <laughs> she, she, she was like, well, she's so sweet. She was like, She's like, no, I wouldn't say crap. I was like, that's the answer I need. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is your first book, The Secret Sky? This was the very first book, yes. Um, and I, I said, well, you know, this is, this, is the, this is the thing. I lost my imagination. I really don't know how to write fiction anymore. And then she gave some good pointers. And then I decided, you know what? This is how I'm going to do it. What I'm going to do is I'm not going to try to use my imagination. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put everything that's real into these novels. So all the stories in both of my novels are real stories that are mixed in, mixed into one. Yes. All the color is real color. I talked about in the first book, the colors of the mountains of Afghanistan, the way the rivers and flowed and whatnot. And in my second book, um, Atlanta Permanent Goodbyes, I went to Greece, I went to Turkey, I did my research, I wrote down the color of the shops that were selling the life jackets, you know, I went to the Aegean Sea to see the, the water, to feel the water, um, yes. went on the boats, talked to the people there, talked to the refugees. Um, so to make myself become a novelist, I used a lot of my journalistic skills um, and just kept it as real as possible. So when it's called realistic fiction, it's real in literally every way. <laughs> and it's very, very similar to the new journalism of the 60s and 70s, right, with Tom Wolfe and Hunter Thompson, where they would, uh, they would really do intensive journalistic work to prep for a novel. Well, it's an honor to be compared to that, but I'd like to, I'd like to think that, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be 
a journalist as well as a novelist. Um, but to be compared to them is, yes, great. Thank you. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's an obvious comparison when you read the book. There's a, there's a kind of, uh, I don't know, verisimilitude or something that you, you have in your writing where it's, it's very evident that this is not just uh, someone guessing what it's like on the scene, but rather that it's these details are, are just feel very real. And the, I think the, the characters themselves feel very real, too. That was going to be one of my questions was how much of the characters that you've created, how, how, how many of them are based on real people? And I think you just answered that um, because that was I think one of the overwhelming sensations I got from the book was that there was a real humanity to these people. It's easy from our perspective over here to um, to think of the you know the politics of the Middle East in certain terms and to forget the humanity. And I think your your book brings that to the forefront very well. I appreciate that. I, I really do. I, I work really hard to try to, as a journalist as well as a novelist, to try to share the story of the people that we do not see on a daily basis, people that we feel disconnected to, because when you go out there, you realize that they aren't people that we're disconnected. We're connected in a very, very powerful way. We just don't realize that just because of the distance between us. Right. Um, but those distances come together um, substantially, especially in this day and age, you know, um, with globalization with, uh, you know, what we call the refugee crisis, um, you know, Europe may be seeing it right at their doorstep, but, you know, we're involved as well. It, it, we're connected in ways that we don't even realize at times. And that's really, really important right now. Um, I mean, what, what do you think accounts for the apparent rise in xenophobia in this country right now? Um, I think, well, it, it's not just in this country. I think it's all over the world. And um, I say this as someone who's been gone from America for the past 10 years and just came back in August. I do feel more of a culture shock actually coming home to America where I grew up um, than I have going to countries overseas, which is was shocking to me, to be mm. honest. Yes. It's, it's, it's crazy. In fact, um, there's just so much that terrifies me. A lot of people say, aren't you happy you're out of the Middle East? I'm like, actually, I'm terrified here. I mean, I had my three-year-old in the fall tell me about his stranger danger drills. Um, mm -hmm. And then they had to do it again just this past week. And I'm just like, you know, he didn't have to do that in Jerusalem. Um, right. uh, but that, going back to your question about the rise in xenophobia, you know, I, I truly believe that it, it's, it stems in fear um, and really the fear of the unknown. I think that it's human nature for us to be afraid of things that we do not know. Um, the, the danger comes in when we try not to learn more about it. Because mm. when we fear the things that we don't know, which again is completely natural, if we don't try to understand it, that fear often turns into hate because that's the easiest reaction that we can have. But if we try to understand it, and this is the reason I write my books um, the, the, on the topics that I write about, is I want the reader to try to understand a situation better beyond those two-minute clips I can do on television or a 750-word article I could do on .com. Um, it's a way of getting to know these people that we feel disconnected from but realizing that they're real people trying to empathize, literally going beyond just sympathy, just empathizing with them um, and 
understanding and then that fear begins to dissipate and we then find a way that we want to help which in many cases we can't always help hands-on we can't always help financially but we can help by not hating and not perpetuating uh, the xenophobia that's fantastic yes so the book covers the story of a family of syrians who leave the syrian war zone narrowly escaping in some cases uh not escaping at all in other cases uh unfortunately they they fl flee to turkey across the border and then make their way to greece in a very uh harrowing account of the passage across uh the sea the aegean in a inflatable raft and you say you went to greece and did you say you also went to turkey Yes. Yes. I yes. And I think this is a great example of some of the details about the lives of these people in Turkey, as well as the refugee settlement area in, in Greece. You, you get that very concrete, rich detail that shows the, the reporter's craft. But I don't want the audience to have the impression that there isn't a, a, a lot of poetry to this book also, because it, it certainly... It, it draws on a lot of the richness of the areas that you're talking about. This, you know, the, the Middle East, Syria, the, the sort of uh, cradles of civilization, uh, the classical world. You talk about Odysseus, you talk about Poseidon, and, uh, and of course you talk a lot about the Islamic faith. So it's got a, a wonderful tapestry, and it reminds us that this is such a, a vital and beautiful and important part of the world, despite the fact that when we hear about it on the news, we hear only about very depressing, modern sounding uh, military and political situations. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people, especially in America, when we hear Syria, we assume that Syria has always been this third world country, which it's not. It hasn't been. Uh, Syria has been a very progressive nation. Um, it's just that our governments uh, did not have relations um, or had very strained relations, I should say. Um, you know, we didn't have diplomatic ties to them, but it was a very uh, forward thinking uh, country with people who lived normal lives, you know, uh, universities, doctors, engineers, um, just a beautiful civilization, an ancient civilization that it had turned into a modern civilization, which we tend not to know about. Um, and then within a snap of a finger, everything changed. Yes. Um, and the thing is, is we assume also that that can't happen to us, but in reality, it can, it can happen to in any country. Um, it happened to my parents um, when they were in Afghanistan um, and before the Soviet war in the 1970s, they also had normal lives. And then in a snap of a finger, they became refugees. Um, and it's, that is, that is a haunting, a haunting message. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm not sure I'm prepared to take that to heart right now with the current situation. Um, but, yeah. uh, yeah, that's, it, it's, I guess it is something we all need to, to face and it's, it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. You know, you talked about uh, there being a um, you know, like the poetry that you had to find your the imagination that you had to find 
to to go into fiction from journalism. Um, and I was going to ask you one of the questions I had down here was what drove the decision to use destiny as a narrator? Because I found that to be a very poetic aspect of the book. Well, thank you. Um, I actually, it was very odd to me as well, um, because I originally started writing this in the first person narrative, uh, which my first book was in the first person narrative, but from three different perspectives. Mm. Um, and I started writing this from Tarek's point of view, but yeah. it just, it didn't feel right. Um, so then I wrote it in just third person and it still didn't feel right. I, I had sample chapters. I, I had the same chapters written from both perspectives and then it just wasn't sitting well with me and I, it just wasn't clicking. And then I kept thinking and thinking and thinking like, who's the best, um, what's, what is the best and who's the best person to tell the story about refugees in the long history of, uh, uh, immigration and refugees and human migration. And I was thinking, you know, this happens literally in all of us, like in all of our backgrounds from our ancestors to today, you know, whether it's us that are the refugees or if it was someone who was our grandparents who came from a different country um, because they left, whether it be for financial reasons or for safety reasons. And I kept thinking and thinking and then it just hit me. I was just like, well, why can't destiny tell this story? Cause destiny has been able to experience what we've all gone through in our histories, despite us not remembering it at times. Um, what was really bothering me was when I was reading some stories about, you know, neo-Nazi movements in America, um, and seeing the last names and there would be Italian sounding last names or Irish sounding last names. And they're part of this, you know, the KKK or the neo-Nazis. And I'm thinking, you know, you were the target just yes. or two ago. And right. the children have forgotten about it. I mean, my husband is a uh, background is Swedish, German, Irish, and Welsh. And luckily he hasn't forgotten that, you know, his grandmother who was German, a German Catholic, she was targeted by the KKK. Uh, in Nebraska. Yes. And she was a blonde haired, blue eyed American woman. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful that my husband actually remembers that, but there's a lot of people within the new generations who just forget about these, these really important details of our pasts. It seems to be a uh, feature of every civilization over the whole history of, of civilization, doesn't <laughs> it? That uh, there, there are, these warring characteristics of human beings. They're defining characteristics, but they're at war with each other between a culture that says you, you have to be hospitable and friendly and neighborly and, a, and at the same time that strangers are your enemies and, and the people who are different have to be shunned and, and are dangerous and are to be feared. Terrible thing. So... You know, the, the book is, you know, you talk about in reporting, uh, you know, you, you, you try to keep your own personal politics and your own personal opinions out of the way uh, as you do your reporting. And then in fiction, you know, I was trying to compare and contrast like, OK, so now you've written a book of fiction where uh, you can sort of inject or write from a certain point of view. Um, but I don't feel the book is heavy handed in that sense at all. I feel like the book uh, gives a fair assessment or a fair shake to every, uh, you know, from, to, to the characters from all walks of life, except for, of course, ISIS, which, 
you know, you take the very controversial view that ISIS is bad. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it made me wonder, too, okay, so it's a, a lot of it is about immigrants. A lot of it is about uh, having to move because of the danger or having to, and, and the, the, the kindness of strangers or how we treat those in need who are, um, you know, trying to, to look for a better life. And it, it did make me think of, okay, so what, I guess, first of all, what is your attitude about our current situation with uh, the Trump administration always uh, pounding their fists about securing the southern border? I think that, I mean, I, I think just the fact that I wrote the book says a lot about my opinion about sure, sure. immigration and refugees or um, uh, uh, people coming from the, uh, uh, the southern border. Uh, I think that there are better ways to deal with it than the administration is dealing with it, um, whether it be this administration or other administrations, uh, the way that they're treating uh, these people who are coming in. They're not breaking the law. They're coming through. They're asking for asylum. That is how every uh, refugee has come to America, is they've seeked asylum in some way. Um, and so they're not breaking the law. But to put them in what I consider concentration camps, because those are camps, what they're doing to these children and separating families is inhumane. Um, and it's it's just not right. And it's embarrassing um, that to to the world as they watch what our government is doing. This isn't just, you know, just some random groups of people who are doing this and they're breaking the law. No, it's our government who's actually saying that it's completely legal to do this, these inhumane things. Um, I think that I think that there are a lot of families that are trying to come th pass through the border. Yes, there might be some bad seeds that might also be trying to come through the border. But guess what? The bad seeds are coming in no matter what. They always find their way. The people that we're attacking are innocent people, children, families. Um, I, you know, when I look, when I explain the, especially the refugee situation with the Syrian refugees who we've completely banned um, from coming into America, is we're not Europe, you know, in the sense of they're right at, a, at our doorsteps and they have nowhere else to go um, when it comes to the Syrian refugees. We have the prime opportunity to cherry pick who can come. We can pick engineers. We can pick lawyers. We can pick people who can really help our society, doctors. Um, I think even with uh, the immigration through the southern border is why not give them that chance? Why not? We have an incredible vetting process. Let's just go through that vetting process. Um, it's not, these aren't the people who are sneaking in. These are the people who are coming through and asking for asylum. Yes, some are trying to sneak in, but that's because they're so desperate. We don't try to look past this, past what we want to see sometimes and look at the truth and that this is desperation. There are a lot of wars going on down there. There are a lot of families that are dying and jeopardy, starving, um, and they just want an opportunity. And I don't see why we can't try to find a way to help. Uh, it, we can't help everyone. I, I completely get that. But we have better ways of going about it than the government's going about it. Thank you. Yeah, when I think about Trump, whenever Trump starts talking about immigrants and a, and a Muslim ban and the southern border, it always reminds me of what you were just describing, the, the, the unique uh, or the extraordinary situation, literal situation of the United States being surrounded by two oceans. Uh, the, the Abraham Lincoln quote where he pointed out that no power on earth 
could by force take a single glass of water from the Mississippi River. Uh, and it, it, is, it is extraordinary. You see that uh, someone like like President Trump appears to be uh, in fear, or at least is affecting to be in fear of some kind of invasion that is simply not going to happen. I agree 100%. I think he's stoking the fear, too, and I think he's playing to his base. Um, right. And I think there's a lot of people who pretend that they disagree with him, but quietly do agree with him and quietly vote for people like him. Mm. But this book is a great opportunity to see, uh, from an American point of view, to see the effect of this kind of thinking uh, as it materializes elsewhere in the world. So at the same time, this is a great opportunity to learn about a culture or a, or a set of cultures that are different from our own. It's also an opportunity to look at our own problems uh, in a in a different context. You know, what, a, oh, go ahead. Sorry, uh, I was just going to say. You know, what was really interesting to me is that so my book was recommended by um, you know NPR, Rachel Martin, as well as Dana Perino at Fox News, mm. and. The coolest thing about Dana Perino talking about my book uh, and uh, praising my book on air was she had a lot of people who watch Fox News, uh, who are anti-refugee, anti-immigrant, who didn't really know much about the book. So they said, OK, Dana Perino is recommending it. Why don't I go ahead and order it? She put it on Instagram and all that. And I got some very interesting and heartwarming, <laughs> I should say heartwarming, because that would be the surprising part of it. Response. Mm -hmm. um, I remember one woman just tweeted and just said, you know, I, I read this book and it's really changed my perspective. I thought a different way. And now and for me, that was huge. So um, I do think that a lot of these minds who are afraid and again, seem hateful are doing it from a perspective that just it just needs a little more, I guess, I don't want to use the word education, uh, I guess, understanding. They just need to understand a little bit more. That's fantastic. And I think that's that's exactly right, because when you do read the stories and you see the the people from a very human point of view, like I said, it's it, it's very it's very affecting. It's so um, I can see how that would that would definitely change people's minds for sure. You get that sort of anecdotal, like emotional um plea. And I, I think that works great. And, you know, so that brings to mind, you know, we have our perspective of their situation. But, um, you know, LB and I were talking a little earlier about, uh, you know, Tariq's, uh, I'm sorry, is that how you pronounce Tarek. the Tariq? Tariq, um, yeah. Tariq's uh, attitude, when he's in, in Turkey, he wants to leave. And his cousin, Musa, uh, is arguing that they should just stay and assimilate to the Turkish culture. Um, but when Tarek decides that he wants to leave, it, I was wondering, where would a family like his get their impression of what life in Europe is like? So what is their, what is a family like his, how did they get their impression of what the West is like? And what, what is their impression of us? I, I think that they're, they tend to be a little more, um, I guess, aware of what's going on in the world than we are. Um, as as, as um, you mentioned earlier that, you know, we're kind of cut off, we're cut off by two oceans. So, and we're in our own little bubble and we tend not to look past that bubble. Um, in the Middle East, in Asia, um, in, in Europe too, 
they don't have those two oceans separating you know, themselves from other countries and other places and other people. Um, so they are forced to to kind of look at things right in front of them, their faces, whether it be on television, whether it be on the news or whatnot. Um, and also on top of that, we live in a world today with social media, um, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Skype, which we're on right now. And they're getting information from other people who've already made it to Europe saying, hey, if you come to this country, this is their asylum process. And it's uh, and it, it's these steps. If you go to that one, it's more difficult. And it's these steps. Um, this is how people are being treated and whatnot. And honestly, too, like even if they hear that people are being treated badly. Um, I lived in Afghanistan for four and a half years working for both CNN and NBC. Um, and on their TV stations, they would do documentaries about Afghans living in like these camps and mud and just squalor and not being able to make it to Europe, trying to dissuade other Afghans from spending any money they have to go to Europe. But that never worked. It didn't matter. And people still had the dream of a better life. Um, because even if places like Europe and America can be hostile towards them, the hostility isn't death in the way it's in their right. country. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I guess there's a little bit of that element of, of the reason people play the lottery also. It's like a chance at something, even if you know it's a small chance, can be very attractive when you feel like you don't have any chance. Absolutely. So a family living in Syria, um, I guess maybe at, at the beginning of the, so the war, civil war kind of broke out 2011 or so. Yeah. Um, yeah. So leading up to that, how much access would they have had to, I mean, so their access to say an internet would be unrestrained. Is that correct? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I don't know what it was like in 2011 with, with the internet. Um, but even today, um, cause let me also clarify, I unfortunately, and because of the war and the situation was not able to go into Syria. Mm, right. So, the way, and I do have portions of my book that are based in Syria. So again, going back to wanting to make it as realistic as possible, I spoke to Syrians on WhatsApp. Uh, through, I found them through social media. Um, I found a doctor from Raqqa who um, was able to read my 30,000 words <laughs> based in Raqqa in my book. Wow. Sure, I got every detail correctly. And, you know, he, he would come back. To, first of all, he said he'd help me, and then he was shocked. He, he was expecting like a few hundred words, and I sent him huh. a thousand. <laughs> um, but uh, he was gracious enough to read it all and then get back to me and say, well, you know, this is right, but this you got a bit wrong. Or, you know, that's not the way it was. It was actually more like this. So I would go through this over and over and fix it and then send it to him until he was okay with it because I wanted it to be as real as possible. I didn't want a Syrian coming back to me from Raqqa and being like, this was completely false. God, that um, is just, that's, that's just haunting again, just because that, that sequence, the, when they're in Raqqa is so scary in the book. And to, to hear you say that, you know, you did the, uh, I mean, look, when I'm reading it, I have to constantly remind myself that this is real and that this is not some sort of, weird, barbaric, uh, fictional land, you know, from times gone by or so, you know, it's like, this is happening today 
or at least pretty recently in the world right now. And it's just, it's, it's really just, it's amazing to think that. I wish, I wish that was just my imagination and that it was fake. Um, Right. But it's all from talking to the Syrians themselves and, and being told exactly what was going on there and seeing them post their own videos. I mean, uh, one of the gentlemen I would speak to a lot was from an organization called um, uh, Raqqa being slaughtered silently. Mm-hmm. And they had their own group of citizen journalists, you know, many of them who would be killed because they'd be caught by ISIS, you know, leaking videos from Raqqa so the rest of the world could see what was happening since journalists couldn't get in there. Um, I wish it was just my imagination. Right. It's an extraordinarily dangerous time to be a journalist, it seems. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it is. And um, in fact, one of the first journalists who was uh, uh, beheaded by ISIS publicly in the video um, was a gentleman my husband knew very well. And it Good really hit, it hit home. And um, I had another friend who her father is actually Syrian. She's half Italian, half Syrian. She's an Italian journalist. And she was very lucky in the sense of when she was uh, abducted, when her group of journalists were abducted in Syria, it was by the Al-Nusra front. And she wrote a book about it because while she was held in captivity, they brought in this black flag and started hanging it. And it was right when the group who abducted her had changed allegiances to ISIS. Um, So she, they eventually released her, but you know, I keep wondering, and I know she does too, is if it was just a couple months later, there was no way that they would release an Italian group of journalists. That's absolutely terrifying. Huh, the caliphate, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, what did you think of the uh, announcement that ISIS was defeated just yesterday? Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the... Yeah, for, for readers who aren't following, or listeners who aren't following too closely, the uh, there has been some claims from from Trump that that ISIS was defeated. That, but the, the more realistic consensus, if I'm not mistaken, is that ISIS has lost all of its actual territory, physical territory, but remains an extremely dangerous uh, organization. Let's is that correct? Mind, let's keep in mind too. He also said that we defeated them last year. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. Well, I, I thought of you. I think was it yesterday also that the uh, there was a an explosion. There was some uh, house that I think the NBC News had been using as a as an, a headquarters in Syria, and there was some sort of explosion that killed a, a driver. Um, I Why didn't hear about that? In the story yesterday, I think it was yesterday. It might have been this morning, but um, yeah. So so I. Right. Um, but ISIS is defeated, right? And is, that, is that what we're to believe? I'm, I'm curious to know more about that because I know that NBC doesn't have off, like they don't have a bureau there, but maybe it's offices that they were using while they were there. I'm not sure. Yeah. I think, well, you know, uh, the, the article said something about it being a, a house that they had been staying in and using as sort of a place to, um, to set up shop, but, uh, and that the house itself had been booby trapped and there was an explosion, but, um, I don't. I think that was. I, I read it this morning, but it might have been posted yesterday. To go, to go back to the, the kind of biblical, classical themes uh, that I that I was reading into some of this book. Uh, I wonder if if I was right. Did you were you thinking about some of these 
uh, more ancient civilizations that have existed in these places as you wrote, or was it more? Uh, I'm, I'm particularly thinking in terms of the tie-in to the to the destiny character who is who is has a kind of a feeling of a, of an ancient god almost uh, or goddess. Uh, is there is there any of that that was that was intentional? I don't know how intentional it was. Uh, it come it kind of comes to me as I write. I, yes. I I wish I was the type of novelist who could plot out book. Um, I I wish I could go from chapter to chapter and knowing how my book ends. Um, but I I don't. And it's something that I hate that I can't do. Uh, I would love <laughs> to be able to plot something and uh -huh. go, just have an outline and write from there because I think I could write faster if I did that, but I just can't do that. So, um, so as I was writing, that's when I started thinking about it. And I was, and I would think about, wow, you know, these waters have been here through this and through that. And, you know, the island of Lesbos, you know, this isn't just, this isn't the first refugee crisis they've seen in the last hundred years. You know, it was during the, what's known as the Asia Minor Catastrophe or during the population exchanges between uh, the Ottomans and the Greeks. Um, and just thinking about that and just all the, I was thinking just about all the blood and the death that those waters have seen in just the last 100 years. Yes, and of course, in the three thousand years before that, it was, yeah. we're a little. We've got we've got all this stuff on the brain because our last episode, which we recorded last week, was about the Iliad. So oh, wow. to think about Greece and Turkey, which was the where the Iliad and the Odyssey take place, yeah. is really interesting. Right before diving into your uh, land of permanent goodbyes, it's 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 a fascinating history um, in that region, all over it. And this is the sad part about Syria as well. When you see, when you saw ISIS, you know, destroying these ancient, you know, uh, monuments and statues and whatnot, just like, you know, Afghanistan saw with Al Qaeda blowing up the Bamiyan Buddhas. And, yes. and it's, it's these beautiful pieces of history. These also, um, I guess, chilling parts of history too, that we need to remember, but then, What's even more chilling is when you see someone destroying it so easily and without even, you know, batting an eye. Well, it's a reminder in a way of the, of the overall impression one gets, I think, from your book, but it, it perhaps even more generally. And I may only be speaking for myself, but that these are these are kids doing this. You know, yeah. a lot of these people are, are not educated. They're not uh, older or more mature people. They don't have families. They are young guys who are uh really probably if they had another 10 or 15 years of life experience would not be doing the things they're doing despite whatever ideological or religious or what other factors are, are part of it absolutely and it's also a lot of people coming from other countries destroying this other beautiful country because of their own uh i guess insecurities and problems in life you know when you see people coming from America, Canada, UK, you know, or European countries and going to Syria to fight, fight for the caliphate. Yes. Uh, and they are ruining the lives and homes of these other people and they don't care. They, they don't, you know, they have their own problems. And now when, yes, of course, ISIS is falling apart, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say they're defeated. Um, <laughs> and even if they've lost land, you know, the, the problem is, is 
the ideology is still there. And a lot of these fighters are trying to go back to their home countries. And yes. that is terrifying. Refugees should not be terrifying. What everyone should be afraid of is, you know, homegrown citizens who have gone there and who want to come back with their passports. You know, mm. it's a controversial topic right now, especially since the UK wouldn't allow uh, one of these uh, girls back because um, they revoked her citizenship. You know, a lot of people say, oh, that's, you know, a slippery slope. But at the same time, yes. you know, it's terrifying. You know, she wants to come back with her kid. And now her husband, who was a Dutch fighter, wants, you know, the Netherlands to allow him to come back with his wife and child. And it's, it, 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 it's scary. It's, it's scary and it's, it's absolutely fascinating, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, what a world. How often do you go uh, to the Middle East and, and where do you go when you travel so You there? said you've been living there for 10 years. Oh, yeah, so four and a half years in Afghanistan. Uh, so that's technically right outside the Middle East. Um, and five and a half years I was living in Jerusalem. And I was traveling a lot for work. So, you know, going to places like Lebanon where I would see, you know, the refugees, um, Jordan, uh, Turkey. You know, there's this there's this misconception of uh, Muslim countries not helping refugees and we're taking on the burden when, in fact, millions and millions, the majority of the refugees have gone to Turkey, Jordan and Lebanon. <laughs> mm. um, but, uh, yeah, so I, I've traveled extensively throughout the Middle East and um, I just moved back literally in August. So um, I'm. I probably would say I'm a little more comfortable in the Middle East than I am here. <laughs> is that right? So, so where where are your favorite parts and where are the parts that you feel are, I mean, I guess with, that you're not safe? Where where are the parts that uh, that are, are difficult for you? Well, there are definitely places that you don't want to be. There are definitely places that I will definitely, I will say are more dangerous than here. <laughs> so okay. when I say that I'm, I'm less scared in the Middle East, I mean my life in Jerusalem where, you know, when there's a war there every couple of years, everyone's like, isn't it terrifying? I'm like, well, it's terrifying if you're in Gaza or on the border. Um, but if I'm in Jerusalem, I feel completely safe. You know, yes, uh, there are, it, I, it was in 2014 where there was a rise in um, stabbings. Yes. But I was thinking, you know, I'd rather deal with that fear. And of course, people were afraid. People were on edge. And yes, uh, I, I was afraid sometimes going on walks with my son, who was a, a newborn back then. But I would still go on, on walks because I kept thinking a knife attack is better than the gun attacks that we have in America. Mm. And, really? and Jerusalem, Israel is a place that has you know, guns, but they have gun laws. Um, I'm not trying to use them as an example, but I was far less afraid there than I am sending my son to school here. Interesting. Going out for a walk with my daughter now, who's also a newborn. And, you know, you just never know who's going to be angry and be able to go to a Walmart and pick up a gun. True. Well, we're running a little a uh, little short here, uh, but I want to uh, add a couple of really quick questions I wanted to ask you. And going back towards uh, the uh, you know topic of of writing and writing as a craft, 
um, you, you mentioned not knowing the ending when you start and that you wish that you could work from an outline. But I, I maybe talk a little bit more about that because I find that really fascinating. I you know, talk to a lot of writers and, and some work from outlines, some have the whole thing plotted out. Others feel like that sort of kills it and that there's an excitement to not knowing where the book is taking you. What, what do you have to say about that? There's definitely an excitement about not knowing where the book is taking you. The problem is, is when you have a deadline <laughs> right. and you're stuck on one section of the book and you're like, I don't know which direction to go to right now. Where are these characters going to go? Yeah. But when you finally complete the book and you're like, I'm so glad I did it this way. Yeah. Um, I, and it works out. It works out well. And of course, you know, you try to get advice from um, people, especially your editors. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, I, in my book, Tarek is a main character, but we also have Alexia, um, and that's because uh, she's a volunteer that goes volunteer that goes out to help refugees um, in, Greece. in Greece. Exactly, um, and I came up with that character because when I went to Greece to research this book, I met so many volunteers from all over the world who were taking time out of their lives um, to help and. You know, we keep hearing the stories about people hating the refugees, but here were a group of people who were helping them. And um, I decided, you know what, I want to make her a main character. And my editor actually came back and was like, you know, why don't we just keep it Tarek? Don't you? What do you think? And then I was just like, I actually want to keep Alexia in there. I want to tell her side of the story as well, just so the readers can have an understanding of again, our backgrounds as well when it comes to the refugee crisis or immigration and human migration. Um, that said, I really wish I could be a plotter because I think I... <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> well, you know, the, there's a, there's, when you were talking earlier about your imagination sort of having died in the process of being a journalist, it reminded me of the movie and the play Six Degrees of Separation, uh, by John Guare, who, in which the main character discusses the idea or misconception, as he sees it, that the imagination is a means to escape from reality, whereas, as he puts it, the imagination is an essential and really the fundamental link that we have to reality. Uh, and, and it reminds me, for example, of the the crossing of the ocean that occurs in your story, where the details clearly came from real life stories and anecdotes and, and incidents. And yet at the same time, there's clearly a massive engagement of imagination by both author and reader to actually put ourselves into that boat with those refugees. And so I guess I wanted to push back a little bit and say that, you know, this book while being highly factual, is actually an example of this kind of, uh, what you might call a journalistic imagination, an, an imagination in the service of actually putting yourself into the reality of another person. Oh, well, thank you. That's actually, that's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. So what's next for you? Uh, what's it's interesting is um, my editor and my agent have both, asked for a story based here in America. Um, so what's hilarious is now I have to do my research on America. <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay. Despite, despite growing up here since I was one years old, I'm like, now I have to reacquaint myself. It's, it's changed a lot. 
um, <laughs> 10 years. I mean, if you think about it, 10 years ago, there were no iPhones. I mean, I remember the iPhone came out when I was in Afghanistan. So this it's changed a lot. The world's changed a lot. And so is this country. So I need to reacquaint myself with everything and um, do my research on what's going on here. And um, and let's be honest, it's changed a lot in the last two years alone, let alone 10 years. So absolutely. Um, I'm 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 excited to learn more. I'm also terrified to learn more. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I want to thank you, Lance. I'm sure wants to thank of you. Of course, I, I want to thank shy you. About saying so. <laughs> thank you for such a great book. Yes, a tremendous book, tremendous experience to uh, to see this world through your eyes and through the eyes of the persons that you interviewed. Uh, a wonderful story recommended to everyone who is listening to us. A Land of Permanent Goodbyes is the book we've been talking about, and it's fantastic. Uh, and and uh, Tia Abawi uh, is the author. And um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Folks, that was a very... It was, <laughs> you know, Mark Twain said that uh, you can't use very. Anytime you feel the temptation to use the word very, you should say damn. So, so. <laughs> that was a damn good opportunity to talk to a damn inspiring author. Absolutely. And speaking of books, because that's what we're really all about around here, we are going to have writer Timothy Braun on the next podcast, and he is going to talk about a book that has inspired him and made him, to some degree, who he is today. Uh, that would be The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I can't and wait. I'm very excited to reread that and to discuss it, because I loved that book when I was a kid, and I'm sure that it's still outstanding. And also, speaking of books, Persistence of Vision Publishing is going to prove worthy of its name by publishing a book in May. What book is that? The book is called Why So Much... And it's by Lance Fever Myers. That's me. <laughs> yeah, so you better get to work <laughs> writing that book. Uh, yes. So, yeah, so Why So Much uh, will be available um, in May. And I think we're going to have um, all kinds of little uh, events uh, surrounding that release. Um, so stay tuned. Um, and, uh, and buy a copy and love it. Read it and love it. Yes, yeah, so follow us on Podbean and, and on Facebook. And please comment, like, and share if you enjoy this podcast. And if you don't, then... <laughs> see, see you later. Take tune care. In, tune in next time. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.